everyone, and welcome back to KPMG in Canada's State of Crypto Assets podcast series. We are back with a very special episode focusing on proof of reserves. For today's episode, I am elated to welcome Nick Carter, partner at Castle Island Ventures in studio for the first time to lead our discussion. Nick, thank you so much for being here. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Really excited for this one. No one is more excited than us, but speaking of us, who are we joined by, but none other than our own Kunal Basin and Kareem Sadik, both of whom have become literal fixtures on the podcast over the last dozen or so episodes. So first and foremost, welcome, gents. It is a pleasure to be back. Kunal, Kareem, how are you guys doing today? Very good, Adam. Great to be here and great to be joined by Nick as well. Yeah, Adam, nice to be uh, chatting with you again. And uh, and Nick, this is very exciting and uh a lot of insights that we're going to be sharing today. So looking forward to it. Awesome. So to start off, Nick, we've got you in the hot seat. So it only makes sense if our listeners get a chance to know you a little bit better before we dive right in. Can you start by maybe just telling us a little bit about your background in the space from founding Coinmetrics to leading venture capital investments at Castle Island? Sure thing. Yeah. So I um, started Coinmetrics as a crypto data, institutional focused crypto data company in around uh, 2016, actually, when I was at business school. And um, started it uh, properly as a as a corporate entity in 2018, and I sit on the board there. I'm not involved day to day anymore. Um, in 2018, also started uh, with uh, Matt Walsh started Castle Island, which is a crypto focused venture firm. We invest in startups at the seed and Series A stage. Um, we're on our third fund now, and have around 70 portfolio companies, so invest all across the ecosystem. 70. That's amazing. So clearly we've tapped the right voice for today's discussion. Uh, really excited to have you here. Before we move on, Nick, I'm not sure if you'll give me that classic parent answer and say that you love them all equally, but do you have any favorite investments that you've led? Anything that you can tell us about? Oh yeah. I have so many favorites. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, we've, I mean, my favorites are the ones that are, uh, the ones that are doing the best, you know, <laughs> So um, we uh, we actually incubated Coinmetrics out of the firm. Um, so I'm particularly attached to that one. Um, we don't have any proof of reserve related investments yet, actually. Hopefully I can add some to the roster. Um, another uh, standout in our portfolio is, is uh, Talos Trading, which is um, trading tools um, allowing firms to uh, trade on you know many different venues using many different custodians, uh, things like that. So they're also doing really well. Very cool. Maybe to get us going and for the uninitiated, let's introduce the overall process at a high level. Many of us have heard it expressed as an equation. So proof of reserves plus proof of, of liability equals proof of solvency. But can we take it a step back, Nick? Like, what does proof of reserves actually mean? Yeah, there's a huge nomenclature issue, I would say, actually. And um, a lot of people like to say proof of reserves is only half the equation. And I'm kind of conflicted on that, to be honest. In my view, proof of reserves, if you go back to the earliest days of it being discussed, originally in the Bitcoin community, 2013, 2014 was when it really emerged as a concept. Back then, proof of reserves was intended to mean um, an entity that was custodying user assets on behalf of those users, proving ownership of those assets on-chain, typically, and in addition, demonstrating that to their users, that they're included in the liability set. So basically proving both sides of the equation and uh, in so doing, a, uh, attesting to their to their clients that they were fully reserved, which is what they're meant to be. These days, 
lot of people um, kind of question that nomenclature or they think the proof of reserves only pertains to the asset side. In my view, it pertains to both the assets and liabilities, at least the liabilities that are sort of in scope. Uh, so that's my view of what proof of reserves basically refers to. Um, maybe, you know, we're due for a refresh of the nomenclature, uh, but that's, when I talk about proof of reserves, I'm talking about both the assets and the liabilities, basically. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. Um, I think, you know, when we, when we use the term proof of solvency, there's so many other factors that need to be considered in order to determine whether an exchange is solvent or not, or insolvent or not, but that's where, you know, proof of reserve is something that even in our view as a firm, we we make sure that whenever we are talking about proof of reserve, we take into account both the assets as well as the liabilities, especially the liabilities towards the customers of that particular exchange. Yeah, I fully agreed with you. And and this is one of the critiques of uh, proof of reserve is that, uh, oh, there might be out of scope liabilities, so you can't have a full picture of solvency. I mean, I would say I agree. Um, a assessment of the solvency of an entity is always going to be broader than proof of reserves, which I consider a fairly narrow procedure. Yeah. And I think, I think I'll echo the same thing, right? Like if you're talking about proof of reserve and proof of solvency, I think when you're saying it's broader, Nick, like in our, even when you think about it within the firm, that's where you talk about, and, and hopefully we'll touch on it a little bit later. Yeah. And frankly, I made the mistake early on of opting for the proof of solvency nomenclature but I'm now of the opinion that you can't prove solvency just through the proof of reserve assessment. Uh, and that's where, of course, traditional assurance and audit comes in. Agreed. Yeah. Ho hopefully we get some clarity on the nomenclature very soon. And as an industry, we're able to agree on a certain terminology and, and push that, uh, push those guidelines as a standard. Love it. Awesome. Well, that's really interesting. I think back to a couple of our discussions, Kunal and Kareem, and every time we talk about this concept, it feels like it almost always comes back to the protection of the consumer. So Kunal, what are some of the benefits of proof of reserves for crypto custodians and exchanges, and how does the process protect consumers? So when we think about proof of reserve, it's really a mechanism that is used by crypto exchanges and custodians uh, to provide transparency and, and verify the assets that they hold, especially on behalf of the customers. Um, you know, this is becoming increasingly popular among a lot of the crypto businesses uh, as a means of building trust with their, with their customers uh, and also the wider community. So, you know, when we talk about what are the benefits for the crypto exchanges and custodians? So, you know, I would start with one, increased transparency. So, you know, it allows the customers to verify that the exchange or the custodian actually holds and controls the assets that they claim to have on behalf of their customers. Um, it, it also ensures improved security, right? Like uh, crypto exchanges can, can demonstrate that they're taking steps to safeguard their customer assets. And, and this is particularly important for, for large crypto exchanges that um, are dealing with different business practices, including staking, uh, as as well as other potential business opportunities that they have. Uh, it's a better risk management tool as well, right? So this way, custodians and exchanges can manage the risk more effectively by providing a more accurate picture of their asset uh, to the consumers as well as to, the, to their investors as well. Um, lastly, I would say, you know, this is going to become a norm in the industry because 
regulations are have started to call out proof of reserves uh, within their guidances and staff notices. Um, so in many jurisdictions, we've seen crypto businesses are required to comply with these regulations around proof of reserve. And, uh, and if they don't, then there are enforcement actions that can be taken against them. Um, I don't know, Nick, if you have any other thoughts to add on to that, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, we're at a very interesting time in the history of proof of reserve. If you look historically, it's gone in waves where exchanges have done it or started introducing the procedure on a kind of reactive basis after major collapses. So the first wave was after the collapse of Mt. Gox. That was when, um, you know, 2014, 15, quite a few exchanges started to do it, but that petered out. And then after Quadriga, there was a revival in interest. And now, of course, after FTX, by far the most interest we've ever seen in the procedure and an emergence of new techniques, more sophistication. And now for the first time ever, I would say also a push from regulators. So it's coming both from the bottom up, from clients asking for it and counterparties and that as part of their due diligence, and now also from regulators. So there's both a carrot and a stick. So I would say major exchanges and custodians if they're custodying user assets, they should really give the procedure a hard look and uh, start to consider how they could basically start to do it. Yeah. And if you're if you're talking about, like you're, you asked the question, what are the benefits? Like, quite frankly, like all the stuff that Nick, you're talking about, Mangox, FTX, it's just the reputational within that industry. I think mainly that's one of the key benefits. If I think about it, security and everything we talked about, but it's trust, right? You have to continue to build that trust because... That was one of the key pillars that is going to continue to show increased adoption, more institutions, like more institutions actually walking into the space. So trust to me is one of the main benefits, if anything. Yeah. And I mean, I would say as an industry, we now have an obligation to restore the shattered trust that came after 2022, after so many of these firms collapsed. And um, Historically, exchanges haven't sought to compete on the basis of credibility. It's been more on the basis of asset listings and the variety of products. So it's what's encouraging to me, and I wish it was under more auspicious circumstances, is now they're starting to compete on credibility, and it's creating a much better environment for their clients. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Nick, you, you mentioned the end of last year, and I know you recently wrote an article on the state of proof of reserves at the end of 2022. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts. How can an exchange demonstrate proof of reserves? I guess what I'm getting at is, is there an industry best practice? There's emerging there's emerging techniques which exchanges are starting to do collectively, but as of right now, I would say they're very heterogeneous, the proofs of reserve that we're starting to see. So I would look for more standardization. There's a, a number of axes along which these procedures vary. So whether you are demonstrating only to clients that they're included in the liability set, or you're demonstrating to any third party who may not be a client of the exchange of the aggregate value of those liabilities. Exchanges differ along that axis. Certain exchanges are doing cryptographic verification, um, external facing proofs of the assets held on chain, and some are doing that through a security firm or an auditor. They may not be disclosing their assets on chain. In addition, there's different approaches to the technical way in which the liability set is demonstrated. So the default strategy would be 
to create a Merkle tree or a Merkle proof, and there's technical differences there that we see. And then there's new, new approaches to the liability set, which involves zero knowledge proofs as well, which stand to basically leak less, less client data, less information that can be inferred around clients. So as of right now, I'd say there's actually no standard. And the other thing is, of course, certain exchanges use audit firms to ratify their proofs of reserve and others don't. And then, of course, there's frequency. Certain exchanges are doing it on a daily basis or biweekly. Other exchanges on a twice-yearly basis or quarterly basis. So while I'm encouraged by the uptake, I mean, we've seen over 10 major exchanges start to do it or resume it recently, there is still very little standardization in the industry. So that's one of the things that I'm looking to see improvement on in the coming months. Really interesting. Yeah. Are there any examples that are top of mind for you? Examples in what respect? I'm thinking specifically if you want to make any reference to your proof of reserve score, anything in there. Yeah, I, I mean, I uh, I developed kind of like an informal score, um, uh, assessing uh, the quality of proofs of reserves, um, and um, it's not meant to be, you know, an endorsement of any exchange. Um, but for me, the sort of best in class would be something where the entity is cryptographically verifying assets held, it covers the vast majority of their assets. It doesn't have to be 100% because getting to that long tail can be really diff difficult if you have many smaller assets. It's frequent and done on an ongoing basis, which is really important because that addresses the window dressing critique. The users can verify their inclusion in the liability set. And ideally, any third party could verify that, although fewer exchanges are doing that. And then, of course, um, including auditors is something that I recommend, although that's been tricky. And then accounting for all of the client liabilities on the platform, that's important, but also complicated if you have things like margin or derivatives. Uh, that gets much more challenging because it's not simply a matter of summing up assets against outstanding liabilities. You then have to develop additional techniques to show that the client margining system is is credibly accounted for, which is 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 tricky in some cases. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And like, I think one of the things that we're also seeing is, you know, the, the regulators are now pushing for exchanges to segregate client assets from their own corporate assets, and this is becoming a requirement. And you know, and you know, we probably will talk about how it's different from financial audit. However, now that is being included. As our, our, the regulators are asking for that to be included within the audited financial statements. We've seen Bermuda Monetary Authority do that uh, recently. And also, I believe uh, one of the SEC staff notices in the last couple of months uh, also asked for, the, for that specifically for, for the public exchanges uh, on the asset as well as the liability side. And, you know, I, I understand that some of the exchanges are trying to do proof of reserve uh, and calling it attestations when they're doing it on their own. But like attestation means a very different thing to auditors uh, and especially for traditional accounting firm, right? Like an exchange may reach out to, to a third party auditor like us to demonstrate proof of reserves for them. But I, I can tell you that we're, we're a long way from that as of now. Yeah, and I'll just add to that one thing. And, and of course, you guys are the actual experts on accounting, whereas I absolutely am not. I'm just an enthusiast. But my understanding is that, or at least my belief, is that a proof of reserve is a 
is complementary to a financial statement audit, audit, not a substitute necessarily. Um, and they kind of cover different things. So I, I believe a financial statement audit is a much broader undertaking and comes with a high level of assurance as to the sort of general procedures that the, uh, the entity is undertaking. But it's not necessarily giving you the exact same assurance that a proof reserve gives you, which can be done at a higher frequency, which pertains to a narrow thing, which is the client liabilities and the assets held. And indeed, if you look at some of the publicly traded exchanges, at least in the US, historically, some of their financial statement audits, those haven't necessarily covered the client assets or the outstanding liabilities in, in prior years. And in some cases, again, I'm sort of out of my depth on the accounting stuff here. It's a different methodology to ascertain the existence of the user assets. It might be more of a sampling method as opposed to covering the totality. So in my view, they're basically distinct procedures. They cover different things. Proof reserves is kind of na narrow, targeted, and surgical. And then something like a financial statement audit is broader and complementary. But I don't see them as substitutes for each other. Yes, maybe Nick, let me piggyback off of that a little bit because the idea of, of saying, so so you're absolutely right. right? Like a proof of reserve as it stands right now is very narrow. And I, I think the one thing that I wanted to to highlight is the main point is, and we hear that a lot, we say proof of reserve audits. And, and I don't think that, again, being from a professional services accounting firm, these, and Kunal, you mentioned that a little bit, the nuance of the wording is very, very important because that's, and it's, unfortunately, it's been used in different, everybody's using it very differently, but saying that a proof of reserve, that's something that's very narrow, it looks at assets, liabilities, that they equal, that's all it's doing is not an audit, right? And that's why we're saying it's complementary. It feeds into, it can work together with a financial statement audit or otherwise. It's, it's basically a set of procedures that you've agreed to do without any attestation or an audit associated to it. But again, unfortunately, it's been used in the wrong way over the, the past little while. And I think now with everything that's happening, we're starting to understand, hey, proof of reserve, it is a very narrow thing. It needs to be complemented with something else. And that's one of my regrets, actually, not that I had any control, is that certain industry players called it a proof of reserve audit. And then that drew a lot of critique from the traditional sort of CPA space, basically saying crypto people are overstating uh, the assurances associated with proof reserve. And there was actually a letter from uh, Elizabeth Warren and some of her colleagues regarding um, regarding um, basically uh, it, it, you know CPA firms in the U.S. that had overseen proof reserve procedures, calling them sham audits. And I think the solution is just to be really precise in terms of the assurances you can get from proof reserve and uh, and you know dropping the the audit terminology from the proof reserve itself yeah yeah not agreed Nick Ray maybe while I have you I know we've talked about this we've all heard the horror stories as of late when exchanges don't demonstrate proof of reserves I'm thinking of examples like quadriga which I know you and I have talked about before but what are some real world consequences of lack of proof of reserves and could these have been mitigated yeah I, I mean we don't have to look too far back that's one but you can look too far back and I'll, I'll give you a few examples right this is this is basically just the due to the lack of transparency in general but also the lack of of governance and I'm gonna try to equate them that's that's two different things to a certain extent 
So you talked about Quadriga, which happened in, in Canada. So that's a little bit more, more recent, which led to loss of millions and millions of dollars. Uh, but there's also obviously most recently FTX, uh, more misalignment again of customer funds, but also more, more importantly around mis like mismanagement or from a risk management stat standpoint or governance lack of that. Uh, but then this is not something new. So now going back, oh, gops, you're talking about something that happened in 2014. So proof of reserves, while we're now hearing it because of FTX and, and more recent things that just happened, these are things that have been happening for a while and proof of reserve has been a discussion that's been happening since, since then. So that's very, very important to know. But to be honest with you, if you think about it, like these incidents, they could have easily been mitigated. I don't know if I can say they could have been prevented, but mitigated to a certain extent by implementing a robust sort of proof of reserves protocols so that those alone, it would have given you red flags at least giving you a few things that you could have said, Hey, this is not this, something is, something is off. Now you can say if you had have married it up with proper governance and internal controls and all of that, then you get the, the prevention piece less on the mitigation side. But I think to be honest with you, like these incidents are, they, they just have such a significant impact on the overall reputation and trust in the crypto industry. And it's just causing a lot of potential people or investors or not to get into the space. So I think while you're saying, what are the real life consequences? I think primarily it's reputational loss of millions and millions of dollars. So while proof of reserves on its own might've not prevented certain things, it's certainly, and I can say I'd like, I'm a very big proponent of that. It could have, it certainly would have mitigated and provided a lot of red flags in terms of I can see that there's some form of misappropriation of assets here or something is happening. Lack of that is what we've seen with FTX, Quadriga, and Mount Gox a long time ago. Yeah, one thing I'll add there is I agree. I don't think proof of reserve necessarily solves this. I mean, there's other ways exchanges or custodians can fail that even in the presence of a proof of reserve, they can still fail. They could have a key man risk. They could get hacked. They could, you know, there could be some siphoning of funds. However, imagine a world in which proof reserves was fully normalized throughout the industry. In this case, those exchanges, I don't believe would have even been able to pass proof reserves in terms of the way that they were operating. As far as I understand Mt. Gox, they were insolvent for years before they ultimately collapsed in 2014. So unless they had reformed their structure and gotten their books in order, they wouldn't have been able to do proof reserve. Same thing, as far as I can tell, I believe Quadriga had a long-running issue before it ultimately went down. FTX, we don't know the whole story yet. Basically, what I think would have been the case would have been, let's say everyone else had been doing proof reserves, then there would have been enormous red flags around these exchanges that couldn't do it or wouldn't do it. So I think the, the merit of proof reserve is the credible, well-regulated or the you know, better-organized exchanges, they do it. And then anybody that's a prospective client of these exchanges that can't or won't do it, that's a very strong signal. So that's why I think it's so important for it to be normalized throughout the industry is that signal's much stronger if it's only a small handful of exchanges that aren't doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Most of my conversations right after FTX, and I'm sure for, for you as well, Nick, very like, it was like, oh, so this happened and now 
everyone that was critical of the crypto industry had a much bigger reason to to critique it even more and and i think that is a significant real world consequence uh that i in my opinion you know took the industry back by by a couple of years so you know had there been proper for reserve or similar procedures to identify or mitigate these fraud um this could have been this could have been identified at a much sooner stage with with much lesser losses so so that's why i i feel like when we talk about for reserves it, it is not just about you know assets backing the liabilities and and making it whole but also having a view into what are some of the controls identified uh to what nick mentioned right like key person risk there should not be a single person or two people that are best friends that are you know the two multi signatories for for a whole of crypto assets uh crypto exchanges assets so you know those procedures need to be identified the risks need to be you know documented and mitigated appropriately and as an industry i i believe and and that's one of the things we're doing uh, as a firm is what are the best practices and in these procedures that we can outline because we you know we can't wait for um some of the regulators or even like our accounting firm regulators to come up with those procedures as an industry we have to identify these we have to follow the best practices and educate everyone on these procedures on how we are managing the risk rather than avoiding the risk completely by not dealing with crypto assets yeah so so i'm going to i i like i like the discussion because we're we're sort of delineating between proof of reserves and complementing it with other audit procedures so so can we do you guys agree with me to say a proof of reserves on its own as it stands today right like as we know it as it stands today doesn't guarantee because i want the listeners to understand it's it doesn't guarantee the quality of the exchange by no means will it identify or or give you any insights in terms of the quality of it or certain things related to uh like you, you talked about for example is this exchange susceptible to to being hacked that's not going to be covered by a proof of reserve or is it uh insolvent or or not or it could be in the future that's not going to happen through a proof of reserves as it stands today so i i think it's very important just again maybe i'm reiterating things that we already said but a proof of reserve on its own will not guarantee the quality of of an exchange is that is that fair is that a fair comment yeah, I agree. The, what I would say is the exchanges that have a track record of doing proof of reserve and doing it at a high standard, that is indicative of them being healthier. But it's certainly not a panacea on its own. Yeah, yeah, I I totally agree. And and you know, to add on to the next point, also the frequency at which the exchange is doing it matters a lot because mm-hmm. you know if it's going to be every six months. Well, there's a lot that can be done on chain in within those six months. Yeah, and we should probably address that critique. I mean, uh, I believe the term is window dressing. Tell me if you think there's a better one. But um, basically, critics of proof reserve like to allege that exchanges could simply borrow on a short-term basis as of quarter end or whatever the frequency is to you know, find sufficient assets to meet their liabilities if they're under-reserved. And the frequency helps address that, I would say, if you're doing it more frequently than 
you know, for some exchanges that are doing it on a daily basis, it just doesn't really make sense to be borrowing funds literally every day. The other thing is it would also be observable on chain. And so that's where the transparency comes in is in the old paradigm, it's not like anybody could observe the inflows in and out of a bank, for instance, or some custodian of other assets. Here, in many cases, exchanges are disclosing their cold wallets, their clusters of wallets on chain. So there would be some element of kind of user vetting there where you could see if there were massive in and out flows around the time at which the proof of reserve was assessed that would be indicative you'd be able to see if there was a lot of window dressing yeah i think the the transparency that we have on chain and that was one of the one of the unique selling points of, of crypto and the industry as a whole and you know if what are we doing if we're not taking advantage of that and i'll add that um folks just regular folks on the internet looking at FTX's cold wallets after the Coindesk revelations came out. That was one of the ways that we learned that something was deeply amiss. So crypto is really unique in that respect in that there is a latent level of transparency which can be exploited to determine whether an exchange is doing something wrong. So proof of reserve, if that's normalized, it makes it much easier for regular folks to actually do that kind of assessment. Hey, Nick, are you ready for a loaded question? Uh, yeah, far away. Okay. <laughs> I want you to start by touching on the concept of zero-knowledge tech, essentially explaining to our listeners what it is. And because I think your answer is going to provide a perfect segue, I want to also basically have you lead into talking through some of the challenges for implementing and maintaining proof of reserves maybe even any innovative solutions that you've seen that deal with these issues. Yeah, so this is one of the most exciting developments, I would say, in both Proof of Reserve and the crypto industry broadly, is the emergence of productized zero-knowledge proofs at scale. And it's only fairly recent that they've become, <clears throat> you know, there have been some sort of crypto assets that have incorporated CK proofs, but it's only recent that they've actually become more frequently used in client-facing products. So the essence of it is basically proving knowledge to a third party of some fact or some data without necessarily revealing the underlying data. So the canonical example is, you know, maybe you could go to the bar and prove that you're over 21 without actually revealing your birthday, basically. Um, if you ask me to go into any further cryptographic details, I, you know, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do that. <laughs> But in the proof of reserve space, it's very salient because the historical way in which exchanges have done the liabilities attestation or uh, disclosing liabilities is basically constructing a, a Merkle tree, basically a list of the liabilities and um, doing some anonymization. So not leaking, you know, literal client data saying, okay, client one has two Bitcoins and uh, here's their email address, you know, some anonymization. But you are still leaking a fair amount of data. You're leaking the aggregate amount of client balances on the exchange. You're leaking the distribution of assets on the exchange. And potentially, depending on the implementation, you could also leak certain clients' change in balances over time, which clients don't necessarily want that. You know, let's say you're a hedge fund, you're trading on an exchange, you have collateral on the exchange. Do you want anybody to be able to come in and see that you've move from one asset to another over the period through the proof of reserve. 
that's not a desirable feature. So now we're seeing um, new techniques for doing that liability disclosure where instead of just basically publishing a list of balances, you're actually just providing clients with a cryptographic receipt showing that they are included in the liability set and the liability set adds up to a certain amount, which equals the assets on chain, but you're not actually disclosing much other data. You're not disclosing the distribution of balances. Um, well, it's really sort of up to you what you'd like to disclose. So you can basically be much more selective with the data that's being leaked. And historically, this has been one of the main issues exchanges have told me why they didn't want to do proof of reserve because they felt that they were leaking too much data. They had 100 million clients. They just didn't want to run the risk of leaking a lot of data. So the inclusion of zero-knowledge proofs is really, really positive, I think, because it means now you can start to do proof of reserve in a very sophisticated way, the same level of assurances, but without uh, unnecessarily leaking certain data, which could be used against exchange or their clients. Yeah, that's the privacy piece, right, Nick? Like that's where whether it's a critique or hesitation, it's always been, well, you know what, it's all about the privacy. And if we're going to release the liabilities or a full set of liabilities, then if like from a privacy standpoint, we have a big exposure. And I think zero knowledge sort of addresses or mitigates it to a certain extent, right? I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a valid concern, honestly. Um, I think the best way to do a proof of reserve is to release to the general public basically the full accounting of balances. But of course, that could end up leaking a tremendous amount of data. Anytime you're publishing a large data set, smart people can make inferences and find out things about the exchange and their clients and things like that. So the one issue there is that the zero knowledge approach is a more black boxy, and it's not as straightforward as the Merkle approach, which is pretty simple and very well understood. Uh, so there's a trade-off there. But overall, I think that's the direction we're going, and it's just more sophisticated cryptographic technology, and so that's really the progression I see. Based on our discussion so far, it does sound like we have consensus amongst our guests that more standards are needed. Nick, you wrote a compelling paper on insights for policymakers on proof of reserve, so I wanted to touch on that. What should the role of regulation and government be in enforcing proof of reserve requirements? Yeah, I mean, this is probably going to get me canceled among my uh, my peers in the crypto space or accused of being a statist. But look, I think while I'm very impressed and heartened by the uptake of proof of reserve among exchanges in crypto, it's not 100%. I mean, I did an accounting of the coverage that I'd seen of proof of reserve for client assets as of year-end 2022, and I think I found $33 billion worth of covered assets but of course, there's many, many more assets which are held on deposit at these exchanges and custodians. I mean, probably over a trillion, if I had to guess, or probably not actually, but hundreds of billions at least. So it's still a minority of all the crypto assets. So I think there is a, there is a need for more of a, a stick as well as a carrot approach. And I don't blame policymakers for starting to incorporate this into legislation. I think it's a reasonable thing to ask. And any exchange that's credible should be able to do it. And technologically, I think it's tractable now. I don't think it's too much to ask. So we're actually seeing this. We've seen mentions in Wyoming. You guys were just telling me that actually in Canada, there's now some language, prospectively, 
regarding proof of reserve. There's even a draft legislation in the state of Texas asking for exchanges that I believe custody over $50 million worth of client assets to do, I believe, quarterly proofs of reserve. So I think it's actually quite sensible. And I think exchanges and custodians should start to realize that this will be something that regulators do request of them. And I think that's a positive development. Okay. Kunal, earlier in our talk, you did mention traditional financial audits. I do want to bring it back to, to that point. Maybe do a bit of a compare and a contrast, if you will. How does proof of reserves compare to the traditional financial audits? Like, are there any key differences that our listeners should be looking out for? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think one of the things that you know, we've noticed is when we do, whenever we do audit, right? Like audit starts with uh, assertions. So we we look at certain assertions such as accuracy and valuation, existence, completeness, rights and obligations, and, and presentation and disclosure uh, for any line item within the financial audit statements, right? Um, when we talk about proof of reserve, we're talking about very specific items. We're not talking about related body transactions. We're not talking about, uh, you know, what the operate, how the operations of that exchange or business are are functioning. All we're doing is ensuring it. Proof of reserves are very narrow in nature. All we're doing is ensuring that the exchange is able to meet its customer liabilities um, at the end of the day. So, in order for us to do that. And, you know, there is this view in, in the industry that while all we're doing is checking the on-chain wallet balances and, and that the exchange claims that it has control over, and then we are uh, checking those wallet balances and consolidating them to make sure that it is equal to or more than the customer liabilities. But then again, there are more procedures that we need to conduct in a proof of reserve as well, like in my opinion, because... We need to make sure that, you know, the completeness of the customer liabilities, right? We need to ensure there when we talk about the rights and obligation assertion, right? Like, does the exchange actually hold, uh, hold, you know, the private keys to those wallets? Are there other exchanges or are there other counterparties that may hold those private keys as well and eventually are able to control those wallets? Um, and also when we talk about you know, the accuracy of the reporting. So that's why I don't think, you know, proof of reserve as a whole, as, as Nick mentioned, is is the full answer, but proof of reserve complemented by a financial audit where we're looking at a much broader picture and we're looking at all these assertions as well provides a lot more comfort to everyone involved within uh, you know, from a customer standpoint, investor, regulators, and even institutions at this point to be able to say, yeah, you know what, this exchange or custodian has their business operations in order. They're transparent about how they're segregating their corporate assets with, uh, against their client assets. And it is pretty easy to to monitor on chain what, what the exchanges and custodians are doing with those customer assets. So, Financial audit is, is much broader, which gives us a lot more assurance, whereas proof of reserve, uh, as of now, we don't have any particular standards on that yet, but we do have best practices that eventually, I believe, will formulate as, as standards in the overall scheme of things. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know, Nick, Kareem, do you guys have anything to add on that? 
Yeah, maybe maybe just to add. So so the short answer is they're different, right? Like audits in general, like the traditional audits, whether it's a financial statement audit or and you know, there there are many different audits that are out there. They're very different. And Kunal mentioned financial statement audits in general are broader. Um, prefer there's a, I, I think also a nuance that you can think about it. If you're talking about financial statement audits, can you do that to replace proof of reserves? I I personally, I don't think so. And the reason I say that is financial statement audits. Think about how we actually perform them, whether you come in and do quarterly financial statements and then your annual financial statements, that lack or, or period of elapsed time doesn't give stakeholders or, or customers that comfort around what's happening with, with the reserves, right? So again, because of financial statement audits, they're so detailed, they take a long period of time they need to be supplemental with the proof, proof of reserves. The flip side, proof of reserves, if done right, or if if we get to a point where we can actually do them, and I'm going to say weekly, some are doing them daily, whether it's monthly, it, more, I, I'm going to say just more frequent, that in combination with a financial statement audit gives you that comfort. And I'll also add, like, think about proof of reserves, what it, why they different as opposed to traditional audits. Like when we talk about in case of if insolvency, let's say, what happens to the sort of the the, the customer um, assets? Do they get priority or they don't? That wouldn't be covered through a proof of reserves or maybe not even through a financial statement audit, but maybe something, a legal assessment or something else. So there's many, many different things that need to be done in combination to give you the end result that when people say, oh, proof of solvency or give you comfort. Uh, so the short answer, again, I'll repeat, it is it is very different, right? And the period of time it takes to do both is very different. So they should complement each other. Yeah, I'll just add one thing there. You know, a lot of the, the critique around proof reserve basically centers on the fact that not all assurances that a client might seek from an exchange can be derived cryptographically or mathematically. There is, as you say, additional legal and contractual context required for a depositor to be to have full a full level of comfort that their assets are theirs legally. They're not just an unsecured creditor of the exchange, that in the case of liquidation or bankruptcy, that they will be privileged, which is the way they should be. There's not a level of comfort on in the default case that their assets are segregated segregated from the operating capital of the exchange. So there are additional contractual processes that need to be in place. Proof reserves is fairly, you know, it attempts to narrow down the assurance process to a fairly mathematical procedure, but it's okay to acknowledge that proof reserve doesn't do everything. That's fine. And I think the backlash against it, it you know, it, it is a consequence of people not realizing that proof reserve doesn't do everything. And once we do understand what it does and what it doesn't do, it's much more straightforward and easier to reason about. Awesome. Uh, Nick, you've performed incredibly well in the hot seat, as we said, but we'd be remiss if we didn't at least give you a chance to flip the script and ask anything. So I, I will say to you, is there anything that you wanted to do either in terms of questions or commentary for the KPMG side? Yeah, I guess... Um... You know, my observation around the state of proof reserves is I'm excited to see policymakers embracing it um, in both Canada and the U.S. 
Uh, but I'm concerned that there's not enough coverage from the CPA firms to oversee the procedure. So, and I think a lot of the time it's because the exchanges that are really interested in doing proof reserve are kind of the offshore ones where institutional trust is not present. So they try and supplement it with cryptographic trust generation. And it's much harder to, uh, in, you know, basically sign them on as clients. And of course, there's a lot of discussion of audit firms that have actually left the reserve space. If you look at any of the AUPs that were issued for firms doing preserve, a lot of those firms are out of the market now. They've received criticism and, you know, may have been caught up in, you know, various exchange collapses. So yeah, I guess my question to you is what are the prospects for accounting firms and particularly the larger ones to re-enter the market? Um, and how worried should exchanges be if they are facing a, a mandate to do proof reserve? We know what are the barriers to them being able to get a CPA firm on board to ratify the procedure? Yeah, I can, I can maybe start on that. Like, so one of the, the first things that we would do in order to accept any client. And, you know, I, I know some of the accounting firms have left the space, but we, uh, I know here in Canada and globally, KPMG, we, we continue to grow our crypto practice and we're continuing to, you know, work towards being able to offer proof of reserve. Um, but for us to be able to accept any client, you know, there are client acceptance procedures and risk management procedures that we have to follow. And that includes getting uh, the full, you know, entity and organization structure for that. And also doing uh, specifically because it's crypto, it's, it's deemed high risk um, as, as a traditional accounting firm. So for us, we do need to conduct enhanced KYC procedures on the the major shareholders and understand how the org structure in the tree uh, looks like. And not just at the, the sub level, but at the parent entity level. And and in my experience, uh, and, and Kareem, feel free to add on, my experience, what I've seen is we're not always able to get the level of information that we need from some of the exchanges that are asking us to do proof of reserve. So we can't, it's not about being able to do proof of reserve or not. We won't be able to do any work for them if you're not able to accept them as clients due to that lack of transparency in their organizational structure uh, as a whole. So, but that's one big key element for us to to get over. And and I would, and I'll be happy to chat with any um, anyone that's looking to do proof of reserves, but, uh, you know, does not want to share what their entity structure is and, and where they're incorporated and whatnot. But that's where, that's one of the key challenges for us. Um, the second one really is, and we talked about it, is the the lack of guidance or standardization uh, from the likes of AICPA, CPA, Canada, uh, or you know some of the other regulators in the space like VCOB. So, for us to be able to get comfort over the procedures that we have documented, that we are you know based that we have designed based on our skills and expertise and what we're seeing in the space. We, even whenever we create audit programs, we do make sure that they follow a particular, they meet a particular standard and a quality requirement. 
right now we're not able to go to anyone and say these are the procedures that we have designed can you you know give your blessings or can you confirm that yes you're okay with this and that we're not going to be dinged after the fact for conducting these so uh that's where i think you know with a little bit more collaboration i would say and and education you know we as an industry we need to go to regulators we need to go to these cpa uh foundations and and both to help them understand what the risks are and what are the mitigation strategies based on those best practices and really like you know audit is not a business of especially attestation we don't provide absolute assurance right it is reasonable assurance which means we're trying to mitigate and address risks rather than avoid risks as as a, as a whole so that's that's my two cents on on your question yeah i think on all that's that's really really well said and like what you said at the at the end but i think i mean you summarize it think it think about it if we can't onboard you if we can't get transparency like think about accounting firms and and exactly what Kunal said around sort of managing the risk profile. If we don't get that transparency upfront from a, from an onboarding process and KYC because you're not sharing a lot of information, that's where we we sort of stop. And and, and that's across the board. The the flip side, the same thing, and. Uh, hopefully this is going to change and I can see it hopefully changing over a, a short period of time. And we talked about a lot of the guidance and regulations that are coming. You talked about Texas. Uh, we talked about what came out in Canada. So I know I know this is going to change. And uh, quite frankly, we're looking forward to it. And it's not because of lack of expertise. And I can only talk to, to us here at KPMG in, in Canada and even globally as a firm. We have the expertise. We know how to go about doing it. It's we need to make sure that we're doing it the right way uh, and we get the right guidance before we actually delve into it. Awesome. Uh, Nick, while we're here, we are pretty much all about our listeners on Podbytes. And one of our listeners had a question for you that we just have to at least uh, give you a, a chance to chime in on here. They essentially had asked about one of Castle Island's portfolio companies, Hidden Road, who's taking a, a unique approach to addressing counterparty credit risk with centralized exchanges. Anything that you can share on that? Yeah, this is actually really interesting structural development in the crypto industry. So Hidden Road is uh, effectively a prime broker of sorts, and their objective is to allow trading firms to trade on exchanges without having direct exposure to those exchanges, without their requirement to collateralize funds on those exchanges, which ends up mirroring the traditional way that, for instance, the equity market works where custody and clearing and then order matching are all distinct functions. So they are benefiting from the unbundling of the exchange. You know, historically in crypto exchanges have been vertically integrated. And what's happening now, especially with some of the guidance that we're seeing is the SEC's custody rules that have been proposed, that would disaggregate the custody function from the exchange function. I think that's a great development actually because exchanges aren't necessarily that good at custody. I mean, frankly, look at our discussion today. The, you know, the, so, you know, it, it, developing the right processes to custody client assets safely is very different from developing a very performant order matching function or margining function. 
So that, you know, the relevance to proof of reserve there is now there's going to be custodians where the exchange is a client of the custodian and the clients of the exchanges are a client of the custodian through that pass-through mechanic. And what we're going to have to see are basically recursive proofs of reserve on a flow through basis. The custodian does a proof of reserve, which is furnished to the exchange, which is furnished to the clients. But I think that's a good thing. I think all the major custodians for these exchanges should consider proofs of reserve and they should be captured within the proof of reserve dynamic. So it's kind of an exciting market structure evolution. I think it's for the better. Um, and I, I think it's warranted. But it also means that we're going to have to get a bit more sophisticated about allowing these proofs of reserve to kind of flow through to the ultimate end, end client. Yeah, and I think like that's where I believe the industry is going as well. Um, you know, recently the Canadian Securities Administrator and their staff noticed they highlighted the definition of acceptable third-party custodian as well, and, and that outlines specific requirements from a custody standpoint that these custodians need to meet and, um, you know, how the segregation of assets need to work. So um, totally agree. And I think it's, it's a great, uh, great product. Yeah, it's unfortunate the exchanges kind of took it upon themselves to roll their own custody solutions, especially if they were lightly regulated. But the reason for that was the exchanges were competing on the basis of asset listings, supporting many blockchains, things like that. And to be able to be dynamic and to move fast, they had to do their own custody. That's what they told me. Now, things are a little different. They're competing on the basis of credibility. And also their clients are asking them, yeah, I'd love to trade on you, but I don't necessarily want to have to do the full diligence on the or have that exposure on the counterparty side. And it's also just not efficient to collateralize on 20 different exchanges as a trading firm. And so the structural pressures in the industry are now actually pushing exchanges to offload custody as a core product offering to consider client funds on the platform as a liability that they maybe want to minimize. So that's kind of the new mindset that I'm seeing. So I think it's all pretty good overall for the industry. And, uh, you know, the proofs of reserve might ultimately shift from the burden falling on the exchanges to these end custodians that might service multiple exchanges. Gentlemen, such an insightful discussion. And truthfully, each one of your answers begets more questions of mine. So although I don't want to, it's probably best if we wrap today's discussion here. Thank you to Kareem and Kunal, as always, for being here, gentlemen. Love learning from you. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having us, Adam. And a special thanks to Nick. It's been truly thought-provoking to hear some of your commentary on the issues that certainly should be top of mind in the crypto world for just about everyone. So thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. It's such an important topic, and I'm really glad we could have this conversation. And to our awesome listeners, thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Adam Rodericks, and be sure to join us next time on KPMG in Canada's series on the state of crypto assets. Bye, everybody. Bye.